0: And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Today we've got a fascinating episode. It's all about Milton Erickson and his teachings. Now Milton Erickson was a famous hypnotist. He was a psychiatrist and really specialized in medical hypnosis and family therapy. But what he's really famous for is just being a natural conversationalist. Somebody who could bring somebody into different ways of thinking and different states of mind with just a conversation, with just a chat. But what he did was actually use a lot of really complex linguistic techniques. And now today we're going to outline a couple of the simpler ones here to sort of give you an introduction to Milton Erickson's method and the way that it developed And the ways that politicians today, especially the one in our White House, the ways that these politicians are using this to influence you every single day. Taylor, why don't you give us a little background on Milton Erickson?
1: Yeah, so basically Milton Erickson was a psychiatrist, and in his training, he worked with a lot of people in helping them to—this was back when psychiatrists actually did talk therapy— or, you know, worked with people kind of one-on-one and didn't just prescribe medications, that he was someone who, you know, a couple things about Milton, you know, he had polio twice in his life, and he had to relearn how to use all aspects of his body. Really fascinating figure. And he is one of the really seminal uh, people of 20th century hypnosis, where we can look at it and we can say, hey, he's had a huge influence. So the Milton model is actually a model that comes from the field of neurolinguistics, neurolinguistic programming, and it's something that came into being when Richard Bandler and John Grender, the creators of NLP, actually went and studied with Milton Erickson. And when they were studying with him, let's understand, they were not studying with him to have him necessarily teach them hypnosis or to teach them about what he did, because you see, Erickson could do it, but for him to actually teach a person about it wasn't his best capacity. He would rather just hypnotize them and have them learn that way about what it was all about. He was a
0: natural. He couldn't explain it. He just did it.
1: Yeah, definitely. He had this sense of just being able to to do it. And so what Bandler and Grinder's contribution was, was actually taking his language, what he actually said, And starting to create a map and a model of through the use of linguistics and through systems like transformational grammar and being able to actually take it and move it into a structure, a format where you could basically take a lot of these ways of talking and make them into a system. So we could actually teach anyone how to do it, not just someone who had gone through all of the various experiences of his life. So what we're going to be focusing on here today are really a couple of the main patterns that we see happening within politics and a couple of the main patterns now that we're on our eve of our episode of our dual part episode uh, about Donald Trump. These are a couple of the patterns also that Donald Trump uses a lot, but not just him. A lot of politicians use them to be able to communicate ideas And what I want you to understand about this is that this is a model of hypnosis. This is a model of how to influence the mind in a deep way. It's a model, the Milton model, is basically about going up into abstraction. So if we picture a continuum where up at the top of the continuum is the most abstract thing that could possibly be abstracted, meaning that it's very, we might say that it's chunked very highly. You know, there's there's big chunks of things. And then at the other end of the continuum, things are chunked very smallly. In other words, we have much more specifics, much more sensory experience. Well, the Milton model is going to take people in their descriptions of life, and they're basically going to chunk them up. In other words, it's going to make it more abstract. It's often referred to that in the Milton model, what we're looking to do is to be, quote, artfully vague. And being artfully vague is really an art form. Uh, But it's also something that you'll see through this model is something that can be repeated. It's something that can be done again and again and again. So we're going to do a couple of the main ones here on the podcast. Now, if you are a Patreon supporter... And just to remind you all, we have a Patreon page that if you scroll down in the show notes and you see that little Patreon link there, please click it and remember to support the show. Okay, you can do that as simply as buying us a cup of coffee, $3, okay, going all the way up to being able to pay for a month's server costs, okay? We really want for this to be a listener-supported show. And so to incentivize people for the Patreon, we're going to be releasing some segments on the Milton model. Now, I've been teaching the Milton model for a number of years now and helping people to actually use it as a model of hypnosis. So these segments are going to be really kind of shortcuts for how you can use persuasive abilities in your life and being able to learn this model very deeply. You can Think of it kind of like a little mini class.
0: And Taylor, what are some applications that people might use for this sort of thing? Where where in their regular life could they use the Milton model?
1: Well, there are definitely applications within, you know, politics, you know, so if you're a politician, that's of that's of interest. But it's also stuff like how do you get your kids to go to bed on time? How do you <laughs> how do how do you do things like be able to communicate in a different way to a person, to be able to talk with them about what's important to them and what they're valuing.
0: How do you get that pay raise? How do you, uh, right. All that do kind of you stuff. Sell the car.
1: How do you, you know, if you're a charitable fundraiser, how do you make it so that people contribute to your fundraising or to your charity? And, um, you know, people can, can, can do that type of thing and are able to do that. These set of skills can be used in just so, so many areas to be able to do it and it's a it's a flexibility with language it's a flexibility with being able to speak and it's something well worth learning and putting the time into so we're going to get into some of the different ways that politicians are using this model and basically it's the structure of language okay so think of it like this there are the actual words that a person says there's the actual description that they they say. In other words, there is the content of what they're saying, but then there's a structure behind that content. So in other words, there's a certain amount of nouns or verbs or adverbs and so on within a particular sentence. Now, normally, you know, you think of that and you go, oh my god, this is bringing me back to my, you know, grade school nightmares where, (laughs) you know, miss so-and-so forced me to... To tell them, you know, whether this was a imperative or a declarative and, you know, all of that. Um, But this is a way of integrating all of this in a way that actually can be very fun. So I am going to get a little bit technical here. We're going to be going into some of the more technical aspects of this that get into some of the rules of grammar and the structure of language. But you are going to notice all the ways that this is going to be applicable And more than that, you're going to start to hear it. So when you're listening to a politician or just anyone who is persuasive, you're going to notice these patterns coming out. And by the way, just because they are using these particular patterns or ways of speaking doesn't mean that they have formally learned the Milton model. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that they are a persuasive individual who, well, like Milton Erickson when he was first doing this, was just naturally persuasive.
0: And to frame this a little bit more is that this is uh, this is a relatively uh, well-developed field now. This the thoughts that that uh, Erickson sort of pioneered and and um, you know the founders of NLP really developed have leached out into the rest of society. These these thoughts, these ideas have really permeated a lot of different sort of teachings and ways of, uh, ways of selling and influencing and persuading people. So a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about are things that you might've heard of before, that you might've, uh, been, uh, ever so slightly familiar with, but that's only because they've been so widely adopted. The things that really worked really just seeped into our culture and are now you know, sort of uh, second nature, uh, sort of underlying and, and guiding a lot of what really successful salespeople, really successful speechwriters do.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's amazing that when, when you're going to listen to these techniques and, and the ways of, of speaking that, you know, we can look at it. We want to remember, remember with all of this a particular maxim and the maximum is basically that a tool, a technique, a method is morally neutral. So how a person uses these particular tools or persuasion methods is completely up to them. Right? So yes, do people use these patterns for sales? Do they use them for um persuasion in terms of, you know, making you buy a car, for example, or leading you into a place of buying a car that Perhaps you didn't completely want the moment before you' yeah, right, and they're also used by people to be able to affect very great changes to be able to influence people for the positive to you know donate to causes that are, are really worthwhile to them to be able to use their time to donate their time to things
0: to turn around their lives to give up
1: uh, drugs definitely so there's so many different ways that these patterns can be applied take the morality out of it because this is just a structure it's kind of like what we're saying hey these are the tools this is the way they can be used these are some of the applications but really it's really all about your intent and where it is that you'd like to you know take things so with that let's let's kind of jump in there uh let's let's get into you know our first uh first patterns here and the first pattern of the Milton model that we really want to talk about is one that is probably most famously used by Donald Trump and it's it's one that people kind of call Trump on all of the time. It doesn't make it any less effective. Okay? And that's what's called a universal quantifier. Okay? Now, a universal quantifier is any word that a person is using that when they're using that particular word or that particular um phrase they're they're making a huge generalization and it it's not particularly reference to anything in particular so these are words like everything everyone any always never every all none okay you know even when a person says something like you know like if donald trump were to say something like you know The Democrats are out to get you. What's implied by that is every Democrat, all Democrats, or, you know, the Republicans are this way, all Republicans, all people of this, of this nature. So when a person uses a universal quantifier, and this is probably, you know, we're starting here because this is probably the easiest one to kind of detect and maybe debunk, is they're they're purposely broadening out a person's experience. So, you know, w- when they were questioning Facebook, they might have said something like, you know, Facebook is is tracking people, you know, and, and every time people lo- log on to Facebook, they're being tracked. Isn't that true, Mr. Zuckerberg? OK, well, that's that every time. And to the people listening, it's like, whoa, you mean right now when I'm logging on to Facebook, I'm being tracked? Yeah, it is. And when a person is using this type of universal quantifier, like always, this is always happening, or you're never going to be able to do that, what it does inside of a person's mind is that it creates a picture that is black and white, meaning it's either this or it's that. So it tends to be very polarizing. So in politics, we're talking about when a person is talking to their base and they want to be polarizing, then they would use more of the universal quantifiers
0: so this is like when um when Trump likes to say that any news that isn 't good must be fake news all all news that's not good to me that 's all fake news or uh, or uh, c n n is always unfair c n n can never
1: tell the truth, or you know uh, that particular news anchor news anchor is always against you know our cause or none of what they say is actually going to be true now of course we can recognize these as generalizations most of the time however there isn't that logical critical voice in the minds of everyone listening saying wait a second all always that happens never everyone all the time none of that and that that's the way you challenge it by the way is by asking those
0: questions. And I love this because we can literally just take a look at at Donald Trump's tweets today. 4 hours ago. In many ways, this is the greatest economy in history of America and the best time ever to look for a job. Yep.
1: And that and that's that that actually goes in and blends into another pattern we're going to be talking about a little bit uh, later on here. But yeah, it's the best time ever.
0: Right. And here's another. The appointment of the special counsel is totally unconstitutional. Despite that, we play the game because I, unlike the Democrats, have done nothing wrong. Really, okay. he's never done anything wrong. Totally and is nothing. And it's totally unconstitutional
1: so you hear the universal quantifiers now what that tends to do is so let's just listen to how this is being perceived so you have on the democratic side you have people listening to that and obviously going like totally and nothing like what is this guy a moron but this is part of why they underestimated donald trump in terms of his ability to get elected and his ability to persuade and but to hit the base to the people who actually believe with that believe that statement or believe what he's saying there's a tendency when people read that to kind of ignore the language okay to ignore what it is that he's how he's saying it and to just go with what the feeling is behind the phrase and when they go with the feeling they're open then to
0: being influenced
1: that's the key moment in which it occurs
0: he does just a fantastic job of, of sort of uh, slipping all of these things in there. So you not even the news media has enough time to sit down and dissect any one of these things or break it down piece by piece. And they get repeated so many times that it becomes automatic, especially if you're a supporter, especially if you're not already in that mindset to to sort of disagree or to think critically about any of it. It just allows all of these things to... To slip through and it's not just Donald Trump the Democrats did this all throughout the primaries uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton constantly going at it and the entire way labeling you know the the system is rigged or uh, you know the the Republicans want to take X away from you well all of the Republicans the entire system is rigged these are really labeling the entire system, the entire group of people as being one and taking the same action when it might not actually be true.
1: Yeah. And so you can have a universal quantifier where the word is there, like all, everything, everyone, no one, nothing. And you can also have that it's implied within the sentence. And of course, if it's implied within the sentence, that means you actually need to be listening uh, to what the person is, is saying. What I would say is that the types of politicians that tend to rely more on emotion use, use, use more universal quantifiers. The politicians that tend to rely more on logical thinking will tend to use less of them. It doesn't mean they're not being persuasive, it doesn't mean they're not using persuasive techniques. They're just appealing to a different part of a person. They're they're, they're appealing to a a different uh, way in which a person's thinking. So let's move on to the next one here. Universal quantifiers, absolutely fascinating. But let's just remember it's just one tool and device that uh, we can have. So the next language device in the Milton model that I am just always talking about.
0: All of the time.
1: All of the time. There's never any time I don't talk about this when I'm describing politics and the Milton model, and that is a nominalization. Now, what in the world is that? That's a big, that's a big word. It's actually a linguistics word. Well, let me describe it to you like this. Basically, a nominalization is, here's the common sense explanation, Okay, I'm going to give you that and then we're going to break it down a little bit more. So the common sense explanation is a nominalization is a big abstract word where a person gets to be really, really vague about things. And they tell you that word and you think that you know what they're actually talking about, but it turns out you have no clue. That's the common sense explanation. Now... Let's start to get down into what actually makes a nominalization, what actually makes it makes it happen. Now, I'm going to go a little bit uh, grammar geek on you here for, for a minute and uh, actually tell you what this is about. So, a nominalization is basically an action, so an action word. So, we're talking about a verb, okay? It's an action word that has been frozen through language, okay, frozen through language and it has been it's being used as a noun so in other words we take a set of actions in other words a process a set of things that are happening and then we make it into a fixed entity we make it into a fixed thing so you know in the mental health field for example a great example of this is the taking something like a person who has some you know is having some sadness or some you know, feelings like they, they don't want to get up in the morning or something like that. And then what do we call that? We call that depression, depression. You have the depression, you have your depression, you have this, and it becomes this thing. Well, the question then is, can they actually do any work on their depression? Well, in one way, yes, but in another way, not really, because it's just this thing they have. And if they have that thing, then there's really nothing they can do about it. They either have it or they don't have it. And so if they have it, it's not a matter of what are the ways that whole thing is constructed, but it's just, do you have it? Do you not have it? So that's, that's an example in that. But let's talk about one of our favorite nominalizations being used in politics. And when politicians say things like, the American people. Okay, and we've heard this before, right? The American people will not stand for a a law that you know compels them to pay for their health insurance or compels them you know anti obamacare thing. <laughs> you know the American people don't want to allow Iran to bully us, okay, The American people will not you know permit this or that, and so. Listen to how many times you actually hear politicians talk about the American people. Now, who exactly are they talking about? You know, now, if you think about it, the American people are number one people. So they are doing things. They are making actions. They're creating things. They're moving. They're going about their lives. And there's many of them. what's actually going on is that we're taking and we're making it one thing we're making it into a category group like this is what all of the people actually believe ask yourself is that even possible
0: and it's a process that's changed right the american people from day to day are not the same we're getting new citizens every single day our citizens are changing their minds our citizens are um are evolving are dying are being born yep and but by using the word the American people, it really sort of just frames that, freezes that linguistically and gives you an idea of that that may not actually be true. It sort of allows you yourself to, to color that in. And, um, and, and that, that's one way that you can do it. And I want to bring it back, though, to, to Taylor's sort of uh, nominalization of depression. The same way that with depression, for example, having depression is uh, sort of removes that agency because it is something that you right. have and you can't change. Another way that you could say it is that uh, you are often depressed. That provides agency, it provides a way out and a way for you to change. And by sort of wording it differently, you've taken something that could change. And really nominalized it and turned it into something that is now a part of you or a part of that thing that you are talking about that might be harder to change. It makes and it into can, a
1: fixed, unchangeable entity.
0: Right. Just like crooked Hillary or Lion Ted. <laughs> you're taking sort yeah. of you're taking sort of processes. You're taking um, People are
1: processes, right? We're not, you know, uh, you know, you are not your name.
0: For example,
1: okay, you're way more than that.
0: You're taking all of these 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 complex systems, and you're uh, you're you're stripping away the agency and the ability to change and the different things that might be redeeming about them, and uh, sort of uh, creating that funneling it all down into One word or two words.
1: Yeah, so the American people is definitely one of those nominalizations. What's another one? How about this? The economy. Okay, the economy. You know, politicians are always talking about and newsmakers are always talking about the economy is performing. The economy is doing well. Now, what exactly do they mean by that? Because actually, the economy is much more than just does the Dow Jones go up or down that day okay there there's so many processes happening within the economy or within our, our economics that are happening within the country there's so many processes that are happening but it's really easy to just point a finger at it and say the economy is doing this Now, if we think back to, you know, back when we were doing our episode breaking down the NPR segment and we were talking about how, um, you know, Pod, for example, in that time had 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 the experience of his people not enjoying a good economy. Now, the truth is, is that we could look at the stock market curve and we could say, well, it might have gone up, it might have gone down. But his experience of it was very fixed. And for him, his local economy, if you want to think about it like that, actually changed. So when a politician says the economy, exactly what do they mean by that? Are they talking in a specific region? Are they talking, well, other than the country, right? But are they talking about one specific measure? Are they talking about, um, you know, futures or... um, You know, various, you know, housing measures or, you know, there's just so many different aspects of uh, our economics that aren't necessarily, you know, accounted for within that. So there's a lot of other things also that that are 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 used. So let me just list off some of the nominalizations that are typically used that you can kind of get an idea about this. Okay, things like um, a nominalization might be something like creativity, okay or solution or uh wisdom or motivation okay you see that t i o n that shun that's a clue that it is a nominalization or you know if it ends with i t y like um generosity for example is an i t y word and that is a clue that it's probably a nominalization how about a resolution a resolution well or you know the or just resolution in general. Well, resolution could mean a law or a, uh, a legal document, let's just say it like that, that has been drafted by a committee and that is, that is uh, submitted. But then isn't there also a process of resolving things? So if we have a re- resolution... If that's the way in which we think about our world, is hey, there's this and this is the resolution, it implies that there's some endpoint, that it's not a continuous process. Now, just become curious about what are all the ways that that actually influences political policy, how it influences how people work in the world, how it even influences things like peace talks. You know, it's amazing that the way we use words is actually really, really significant. So a nominalization is, are those big, very abstract words that when politicians use them, so the next time you hear a politician talking about the economy or something like um, a agenda. A fake
0: mainstream media.
1: Right. Okay. So that, that could certainly be a, a classification. When when you hear a person talking about these these type of things, start to perk up and ask yourself what specifically are they talking about there? What specifically do they mean about that? Now, when we were talking about values, okay, we were talking about this in the previous episode. We, we also did in our special Patreon episode on uh, values and symbols that when we're talking about values. Values are oftentimes nominalized, so when we have you know President Trump at his rallies talking about the um the we want every American to know the 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 fairness of and and the 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 sense of a job well done or or some something like that, he had all of these different value words. So Trump at his rally had all of these different value words, and as he was using them, they were all nominalized. So they were very highly abstract, and what tends to happen with this is that when they're that abstract, a person fills in their own details. So in other words, if I were to say to you, hey, the economy is doing well, or the economy is doing poorly, you create in your mind a mental image or however you represent it in your mind of the economy as you perceive it. Okay, and I'd just like to suggest that probably, unless you're an economist, probably that picture is somewhat limited in, in some way. So let's move on to the next the next one here. And and this is something also that Uh, Alex was alluding to earlier in some of Trump's tweets. And this one is called a comparative deletion. So a comparative deletion is a word that implies a comparison. Okay, so in other words, uh, better, more, greater, uh, the greatest, the, the, the best. There's some comparison that's being implied. In other words, to say something's better, you have to be able to say... Well, it's better than this. But with a comparative deletion, they delete what it's being compared to. They delete what it is better than. So this is the best. But now, do you have a full accounting of all of the various things that it is best or better than? That's that's the question with a comparative deletion.
0: And we can go back to that tweet right there. In many ways, this is the greatest economy in the history of America and the best time ever to look for a job. Now what he's doing is, uh, right back, the greatest economy in the history of America. And he's not providing any sort of measurement for any of that. And he's sort of allowing your mind to paint in All the different ways that you could measure an economy that might make it the greatest now some people in sales might refer to that as like puffery where you say this car this is the best car this is the greatest car this is the number one store well you're not really comparing it to anything but you're allowing somebody who you know might not be paying very you know close attention to the words being used or somebody who might not be particularly critical or somebody who might be sympathetic to you personally or you as, uh, as an authority figure. It allows them to sort of uh, bypass that critical part of their mind and be more receptive. To fill in their own
1: idea of what does it mean the greatest and the best? And, if, and again, if you think about it, that creates a big picture within a person's mind. Okay, so we, we started off with those universal quantifiers. Everyone, everything, every time. And it's the best, it's the greatest, it's the the most amazing. Now, this one I feel like definitely happens equally on both sides of the aisle. Because you're you're actually going to notice... That there are comparatives that are, that are uh, happening. So here's a tweet from Bernie Sanders, right? If re-elected, you can be sure that I will continue to be the fiercest opponent in the Senate to the right-wing extremism of Trump and the Republican leadership. That's the tweet. Now, the fiercest opponent... What, what does that mean? You know, how, how do we know? And, and how is that measured? Do we mean now? Do we mean uh, throughout history? Okay, for example, that's kind of open to interpretation. How do we know that he's the fiercest? And then we also hear that nominalization of the right-wing extremism. So now it's this concept, this thing that you could attack, but it's really hard to attack a concept. Because basically what it is is just a label saying, hey, that's what this is. This is right wing extremism. But do we all do we even know what that completely encompasses? We we don't always know.
0: And I feel like this is a trademark of Donald Trump too. This is something that clearly he learned in sales. Clearly something he's worked on a lot in his life, realizing that if you just say something enough times, and if you just claim to be the greatest and you claim that everything's the biggest that you've got the biggest inauguration crowd crowd and the largest tower and you're the most successful and you're the richest and if you say it enough times people will play along at first people will start finding ways to fill in the blanks and find more and more ways to really come to your way of thinking until at some point they're on the same wavelength and that's sort of what we saw throughout the primaries when Donald Trump largely started out as a joke. I know a lot of my conservative friends thought he was a joke and thought he was funny and they didn't believe anything that he said and thought that he was nuts and it wasn't going to work. And as the months went on, they started listening to him more and more and started, you know, saying he's kind of got a point. He's right on this. He's right on that. I kind of like him. And by the end, and it's time to vote between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton they were full-on Trump supporters and he managed to pull a lot of people to his side just by repeating these same things that might seem silly to a skeptical eye but saying them over and over and over again to people who are not outright hostile to his point of view And slowly they find ways to piece it together and fill in the blanks so that it all makes sense.
1: Yeah, they were doing this with those language patterns, those patterns within language. And they were doing with Milton model patterns specifically. Now, has Donald Trump studied the Milton model? Well, I'm going to leave your conspiracy theory mind to really think about that one for a while. But, uh, you know, they had accused, for example, you know, Barack Obama of... um, you know, using hypnotic techniques. But the truth is, is that any politician who is very effective persuasively will from time to time be using some of these devices. Because what happens is that the the importance of using this is that, hey, you want to be able to communicate to the the greatest number of people possible. And you want to be able to not have to go to each and every one of them and have them agree or disagree with little small points of things that you may or may not, uh, you know, be supporting
0: them in. No, Taylor, you want to communicate to all of the people in all of the ways that they're going to support you all the time.
1: Yeah. And, and you can do that even better. So, and, and, and it is the best way to do it. Because what, what happens is that as you are being able to, to push these ideas and, and messages through, well, the thing that we, we need to understand about, you know, Donald Trump, for example, but, you know, we keep talking about him, but the truth is he's not the only one, right? There's many others who do, did it. He's just the most fun one to talk about. Um, the thing that people need to understand about it is is that so long as they were listening to him, there was going to be a point. At some at some point, you know, if they were even just open enough to hear the message, there was going to be a point at which their critical, logical mind, the um, analytical part of them, the part of them that maybe was practicing critical thinking, that part was going to go away. Okay, and whatever the messages would get in and it would be able to um, influence them in a particular way or, or get them in a particular way. And those people who say, well, he never influenced me. Well, perhaps you were influenced by the other side. Okay, perhaps, you know, that that's, of course, not the only reason why you might have voted a particular way. But do question the politicians that you personally feel the closest to the ones that you feel like represent you the most. Those are the ones you got to question the most, right? Because the other people, you already don't like them. Right, And doing this, I feel like, will actually make it so that you have much more of a clear mind. And it, it, if everyone did this, we would be able to actually elect politicians to offices and hold them accountable for what they actually do. Because we could actually say, oh, wait, this is what you said was going to happen, and actually it's not happening. Now, some people say that Donald Trump is keeping his campaign promises. But we have to remember, or that any other you know politician that Barack Obama kept his campaign promises, that we have to remember that they're speaking in such broad terms about their campaign promises sometimes, and they're they're tapping into these kind of core values that it gives them a lot of flexibility in how they do that exactly, okay It gives them a lot of flexibility we've saw We've seen that with the wall, haven't we,
0: right. Right. And it sort of draws back to the idea of the Milton model, right? Is that you you want to be doing what's called chunking up. You want to be chunking up to the, to the larger, more grand, more broad perspective that you possibly can. So when people say that Donald Trump isn't keeping his campaign promises, well, his campaign promises were chunked so high that... Often they were things like make America great again, restore jobs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, get fair deals. And these things were such, such high ideals that to put a specific pin on anything is impossible. And so they're now tied to the uh, perspective that Donald Trump keeping his campaign promises is not so much any specific action, but rather holding true to these ideals that he laid out.
1: Yeah, and guess what? Um, every time he comes in for, for a rally, he's able to then redefine what those ideals actually mean now in terms of what is actually happening, which is how you keep people you know, going. We have to remember that it's not just as if a person hears the message once and then they never hear it again.
0: Right, yeah, because they never had any specific grasp on any tangible policies, he's able to come back and redefine what those ideals are or to add the tiniest bit more detail to those ideals that gives people an entirely different way to frame it and color it in their minds.
1: Absolutely. And so this has been a really cool exploration of a couple of the patterns of the milton model you know as so we talked about universal quantifiers we talked about nominalizations we talked about comparative deletions there's actually even more of these in which we're going to be covering in the patreon so again if you, those of you who uh, would like to hear more of this come and you know join the patreon uh, you can do it as little as three dollars and buy us a cup of coffee and you're going to be able to get access to all of the continuing stuff we're doing with this milton model we're basically going to be doing little classes there on this it's going to be uh, really uh very informative stuff in which no matter what it is that you want to accomplish in your life these techniques will help make it easier for you so click the link in the show notes and you're gonna you're gonna check that out
0: all right and that's it for this week Be sure to go to our website at subliminallycorrect.com and visit us on Twitter and Facebook. Be sure to like us and follow us and send us your feedback. We'd really like to know what your thoughts are, things you'd like to hear about, and people you'd like on the show. Make sure also to go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. We love your feedback. We've gotten a lot of really cool messages and gotten into a couple of nice discussions with some of our listeners and would love for you to be one of them and help influence the show. And one other thing you can do to support us, like Taylor said, is go to our Patreon in the show notes or on our website and uh, chip in three bucks, buy us some coffee, or all the way up to paying for our server fees. All of it really helps out, and uh, you know podcasts aren't free. And so this is the way that we support the show to bring you this stuff every single week. So tune in in two weeks for the next episode. All right. See you later. See you all soon.